Hello, I'm Pip Stafford, and this is a special bonus episode of What Are You Looking At? On Tuesday the 25th of August, members of the public and those involved with Tomoko Momiyama's work gathered at Contemporary Art Tasmania for a public program with Tomoko and curator Joel Stern. This recording was taken from that event. Tomoko Momiyama's work, listening within the opacities of our times and places, draws on concepts of the unheard, inaudible, and the spectral nature of ancestral voices. In this work, a recording of Tomoko's adopted Ainu father is at once resonant and never heard. I think that's quite a good place to start with the, the politics of recording um, and, and the sort of, you know, foregrounding, um, let's say, this sort of movement from listening to recording and reproducing sound as always a political and ethical moment, um, as always a kind of um, a decision that comes with responsibility and certain accountabilities. Um, And so, you know, I might just start by sort of thinking about, you know, Tomoko as a composer and just what kind of composer Mm -hmm. you are. Because usually when we think of a composer, um, we think of the concert hall. Um, you know, the, the moment of performance, um, a group of musicians interpreting a score in front of an audience. Um, but you rarely inhabit the concert hall, or if you do, there are many other mm. kinds of spaces that you inhabit mm. also. Um, and I think here in this work, um, we're experiencing a composition in a gallery, and it's a rather expanded kind of... Um, account of a composition. It's a rather expanded um, sort of presentation of what a composition entails and what part of uh, that composition is sort of legible, shareable, um, perceivable to the listener and to the audience. So in this work, the score is visible to the audience, to the visitor. Parts of the score. Right. So engaging with this score, which provides um, a kind of political, social, contextual framework, a conceptual framework, um, which uh, is a historically delicate mm-hmm. document in that it deals with the, um, let's say, the colonial indigenous relations between Japanese and Ainu political subjects, um, that also um, provides instructions to musicians um, outlining the agency mm-hmm. that the musicians have, mm-hmm. um, and then also provides notation or kind of um, model of transcription um, from this original source material, which is a voice, into a kind of um, instructions for Western instruments via notation. It doesn't have to be Western instruments. Any instruments. Yes, right. the Scorsese instrument that can be played, um, uh, the, uh, the instrument that can be play, uh, carried by hand by the right. performer and stomped uh, while, while the performer stomps on the ground. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't say Western instrument specifically. But, but in this in, in this yeah. instance of this iteration. Yeah, it was Western instrument. Right. So we have the score as part of the show, and then we also have here on the video. Um, the process of, re- of rehearsing, mm-hmm. of learning the score, of the relationship between performer and composer, um, which is another aspect of 
composition that sort of usually remains hidden mm. or um, opaque to the listener at the concert. We're not um, privy to the rehearsals, to the conversations. We don't understand necessarily the power dynamics between composer and performer. And the, and the negotiation that happens in that gap between the score and the musician's interpretation. And one of the things I note about um, this sort of uh, representation of the rehearsal is that um, as much as we see the performers playing their instruments um, as we are now, we also see the performers listening um, on headphones to the original material. So um, rehearsing in this instance is also a form of listening yes. or, or maybe listening is a form of rehearsing. Yeah. Um, and so if I'm extrapolating from that what kind of composer you are, Tomiko, I would say um, you're a composer who is at least as interested in the aesthetics and politics of listening as you are in the production of sound, mm -hmm. right? So in this room, is a room that is sort of in the, the context of the score outlining a kind of profound encounter with listening and then in the context of the rehearsals uh, showing a kind of negotiated practice of listening which then informs the piece. And then in, finally in the second room, mm -hmm. the interpretation room, we experience the performance of the piece. Mm -hmm. I almost said the piece itself. But really, I think the point I'm trying to make about an expanded compositional practice is that the piece itself is the score, the rehearsal, yep. and the performance all together in a rather inseparable way. And that's where I'm starting to formulate a kind of social and relational practice of composing um, that is less focused on the musical outcome and more focused on a kind of transparent uh, negotiation of collaborative listening uh, and then interpretation. And in this room um, we experience both the uh, musical interpretations of the performers but also the kind of recomposition of their works in the form of a video installation um, in which you have kind of brought certain elements together. Right, so that's one reflection, you know, which, which was sort of me answering the question I asked myself, which is what kind of composer mm. are you? And then I think the second um, question I want to sort of open up for conversation and for your response is the question of silence and opacity. Mm. Um, because it was a really beautiful moment um, f for me listening to the piece in this room with you all um, and especially the respectful and, and sort of rather organic stillness um, that followed um, the end of the music and the beginning of the period of silence at the end of the composition. Um, and it, made something very clear, which is sort of a, tr a trope of avant-garde and modernist music, um, but which is, um, needs to be continually restated in a way, which is that 
Silence is, is never simply silence. Silence always takes place in social space, which is pregnant with meaning, potential, and kind of latent sound. Um, and so if we think of um, silence as an index of time, um, as a form of attention, as a kind of listening to both presence and absence, then we start to attune, I think, strongly to you know, what is most important about this piece, which is this dialectic between transparency and opacity. The transparency of the process of sharing how this piece is made, but the opacity of what must remain unheard, what remains hidden, what it is as listeners that we can never fully comprehend, fully hear, um, and fully absorb. Ultimately, even as a group of listeners in a room, collectively listening to some sound, our, our listening remains irreducibly subjective, irreducibly our own. We can never listen as another. We can never hear as another. Um, and so in this piece, there is sort of a, a constant representation of listening but there is also a representation of the limits mm -hmm. of listening. Um, and I think that gets to the heart of the sound, which is at the very centre of this piece, mm -hmm. which is the recording of the speech mm -hmm. of your Ainu father, exactly. your adopted father, um, which you've chosen not to reproduce. Um, but yet, in its silence, resonates and reverberates strongly um, and is sort of um, ultimately the kernel of this composition, um, the unheard sound at the centre of everything which is subsequently produced. Yeah, so I think I'll leave those thoughts there. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe at this point, um, I wanted to invite a couple of the collaborators um, on the work to briefly reflect um, on their involvement. Um, and then Tom, if I, mm -hmm. oh, <laughs> I'll have a couple of questions for you okay. as well. Okay. Um, but Ursula, yeah. um, you did an absolutely marvellous job as the videographer, um, as the filmmaker um, on this piece. And I wonder if you, if you can say something about your experience um, and what the piece sort of sure. conjured for you? Um, great. I'll just try and pretend to be casual. <laughs> um, thanks, Jill. I really enjoyed listening to your reflections. And um, yeah, I suppose I'd like to start with the Kupla Fokal, which is a few words off scale, guys. They go, Mila Magot, Gachtena, for coming out this evening. Thank you, everybody. It's lovely to have an audience. Um, look, I, I, I really am deeply connected with this work on my own personal level um, and really enjoyed making it with Tomoko. Um, I suppose my experience of this work is losing a parent as well. And so I just feel there's so much uh, love in this work, so much grief, 
so much hanging on or um, transforming an experience for other people to engage with. And I really get that kind of obsession with um, taking someone or something you love or something they said or did and trying to keep that going and see it have another life. And um, I just really love that. So that's been my experience um, of the work. I don't know if that makes sense. I get very nervous when I'm speaking in a room. <laughs> um, which is odd because I talk a lot usually. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and I thought there was a lot of love and generosity, you know, both ways, from Tomoko sharing this, um, this beautiful Ainu language and the Japanese culture and certain things we experienced when we were making the clip, um, hanging out with Maggie and Joe and Georgia and just seeing their generosity, bringing themselves to the speech, what, how they interpret it. It's like this discussion. Um, and I was just thought it was so beautiful. I wished I had a speech of my own dad that I could take and do <laughs> like that. I just kept thinking of it like that. And um, I know that's, uh, that's really how I experienced it. Thank you, Ursula. Um, and Maggie, I don't want to put you too much on the spot. But, um, you um, also did a really amazing um, job as a, as a musical interpreter of this score. Um, and you know, the, the um, playing on the vibraphone was such a, um, and other percussion instruments was such an important part of the aesthetic quality um, of the piece. And I wondered um, if you had any thoughts on um, the musical, the process as a musician of interpreting the original recording um, and translating it into your musical language. Yeah. Um, hmm. I think it was like a super fascinating and deep project and I'm really, from the beginning, was so honoured to be a part of it. So thank you all for the opportunity. Um, um, I found it like quite, I, because we had quite a limited amount of time to create our score, I found we all became a bit obsessed, well, speaking to Joe in particular, about trying to really connect and create, create our scores and performances mm. for this work. So I remember doing it quite late at night, one night, and then just like the voice kind of changing in my ears and becoming this like really rhythmic and musical thing. Yeah. So it stopped being a voice really and became a melody. And particularly because I have a fixed pitch instrument, I have to, like, you know, it was my own kind of approximation of um, the speaking. So yeah, it became quite kind of melodic and rhythmic to me, which was something I hadn't experienced with the spoken word before. Mm -hmm. So it was a really beautiful moment when, yeah, when that happened. Um, yeah, I, I connected with it as well on this deeper consideration about voices and how we steward them in spaces and particularly people who have passed on. Mm -hmm. And it's made me, yeah, really definitely made me think about that a lot more in the last few weeks. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 
it's Maggie. Um, I'm aware there are probably a couple, there's some other people in the room who have um, contributed to the yeah, production sure. of this work. Sure. Um, I guess my involvement was more like on a technical rather than creative part. But um, yeah, sound works. Um, yeah, I thought it was just amazing watching because uh, I was listening and just observing basically um, the process of collaboration and um, kind of the how the interpretation changed um, between performers and also. Of course, how they interpreted what Tomoko was herself, I guess, interpreting, <laughs> um, and and then of course with the visuals, how that was interpreted, and then um, how I again interpreted that myself. Um, and many layers of interpretation. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and morphing, um, but like yeah. obviously in a way that worked together um, through the collaboration. Um, yeah, so that was just a really amazing thing to watch and you know be a part of a little bit. <laughs> Um, and yeah, and I think also just um, I thought it was really amazing how it connects to our stories here in Tasmania, um, obviously particularly with our um, the history that maybe we don't recognise as much as it should be, and um, yeah, and then obviously seeing how that message has global implications for different societies and um, kind of increasing the. Um, integration between different cultures in that way. So yeah, it's just very amazing to observe and um, yeah, grateful I could be a part of it. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, um, Rosie, um, who cares, right? Oh, hi Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> we, haven't met, we haven't met yet, but nice to meet you. And um, you were the, the lighting designer. Oh, I had a very minimal <laughs> part <laughs> in it. And I did a very minimal job with a very minimal output. <laughs> I think that um, the negative space, uh, you know, that was a result of the lighting really echoed well in, in the room and with those um, periods of silence before. And um, John also was um, yeah, the, the kind of um, te the technician sort of responsible for re realising um, certain aspects of the installation. John, do you have any um, reflections that you can share? Um. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I'm just the gallery tech, so, you know, have no creative involvement, but I guess the, I mean, as with that work, and but especially for works like this, which are incredibly sensitive and fragile, it's important that the technology is minimised as much as possible, mm. and that's, you know, maybe part of the why, reason why it doesn't look like there's a whole lot in here, but it took a long time to install just yeah. because of those finer details in making sure that even cables are run in a particular way, etc. Um, just so that the content and the voices within the work can be clearly heard. Thanks, John. Yeah. And um, I think it's really great to hear from everyone involved in the production of the work, um, even if the reflections are brief, you know, because there are, of course, so many um, forms of invisible labour in the production of a composition. Um, but the, you know, work is the product of all of those collaborative yes, yes. Um, contributions coming together. Is this the piece or is this just 
one possible iteration? It's a one possible iteration, yes. Mm. Um, that's what, what happened here yeah. this time, yeah. And how do you feel when the aesthetic world of the piece sort of forms? Is it, are you kind of happy with the sound of those? Is it, is it what you imagined in your mind? Yeah, I'm very or happy. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy with it. I'm, it may not make sense um, to most people, but having that score and that writing that score that is open to interpretation for any instrument, for any instrument that can be basically carried by hand while stomping on the ground, mm -hmm. it really is open to interpretation. Um, so, um, in a way, I'm very confident that even if it is interpreted, for example, by three musicians from a rock band, it's still the same piece. Mm -hmm. That's what composition is for me. Like As a composer, having written this piece means that um, it's, yeah, if, if it's, it will sound completely different, but still the same piece. And so this is one really beautiful, I'm, I'm really grateful for this interpretation, manifestation of the piece. It is manifested through the musicians. I mean, I write the piece to be manifested through the live performance of a musician. And I think what, sort of what I'm getting at is the fundamental openness of that as a compositional yes, process, yes, yeah. not having um, an aesthetic outcome mm -hmm. sort of it fixed in mind until the musicians become involved and bring... I think I'm actually proposing that this is the aesthetic, that this being open to such different interpretation and yet still being the same piece mm. actually proposes a very radical aesthetic, I think, in, in that... Um, it's, it's not just about how it sounds, how it is produced about sound, but what kind of experience it produces um, and yes. what kind of listening it invites. And um, yes. Yeah. So this very relational quality yes. of the sound yes. is the aesthetic. And very much, very much um, intimately related to the context of its presentation, of yeah. its sharing. I mean, yeah, I did it with people here, and that has a meaning already, you know, and has meaning here, having this rendered this way here um, has a different meaning. If I just tour this to Japan, for example, it would have a different meaning. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I would, yeah, but it would, it would make sense still because it was made here in this context, and then I, can translate that context also. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. 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 Basically, the whole, actually, the, in a way, the whole piece is about my decision of not playing the voice, the recording. And it's 100% informed mm -hmm. from my conversations and encounters and reflections after these encounters mm -hmm. with uh, people here and how, 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 yeah, about the relationship between people and the language of the ancestors and how do 
we inherited and who can inherit it and so on. So, yes. So the fact that I didn't play the voice is actually the, the, the art for me here, <laughs> you know, that, that I decided to. So, so that was a decision you made during yes. the last few weeks or months? Yeah. Yes, because in the original piece, I had yes, I had a live performer, live mu musician performing the live, giving that speech with their whole body, like really giving that speech, and all the people in the hall just listening to this speech, not really understanding what the musician is saying, but still trying to understand because they know that something is being said. And after the stomping, the voice was played in the space. So, so a lot of the physical. Like there's a lot of physical yeah. movements going on. Um, is that to do with that original sort of yes. interpretation? Yes, yeah. that's, that's part of the score. Okay. Yeah. And the period of silence that we observed at the end of the um, composition in the other room um, corresponded in duration to the absent recording of the voice. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a, a kind of um, an index of silence, let's say. Yeah. 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 Any other questions for Tomiko or, or thoughts on the piece? Um, I'm just about that silence. Um, what I really like about that silence also is it gives us the space to listen to the sound of the performance in the architecture of the gallery. Mm -hmm once it's finished. Not as a recorded sound, but as a live sound that's embedded in the fabric. Mm -hmm. So the silence for me was purposeful for that as well. Mm. For situating you here as a listener in this yeah, environment. Yeah, for that has happened, not as a recorded performance of Dr. Sweetness. Mm. I thought that was really important. Yeah, and the seagulls here, and mm -hmm. the lighting, the heater, all of that also is in the recording, and the scratch on the floor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nancy, you're um, writing away there. I was thinking about um, the fantastic talk you gave a couple of years ago about um, drumming cultures and the way in which drumming is sometimes an encoded form of, of language um, and sort of um, as a sort of encrypted language and in this piece um, when we hear the musicians perform there is, is a kind of encryption of um, something which you know can, cannot be reproduced and I wondered if you had any thoughts um, well I was just before I answer the question, if I can try to, <laughs> if I can possibly try to. <coughs> I was thinking that the silence was, um, I experienced it as a pause, mm -hmm. um, rather than a silence mm -hmm. as such. And I think that stasis, maybe, or in that moment, um, it's pause rather than silence is mm -hmm. important to differentiate differentiate mm. because it kept you in the moment and the perceptual awareness of the audience, well for me anyway, mm. I was on mm. in the pause. Mm. Um, 
But going back to what you were, your question, Joel. Um, yes, I mean, I don't, yeah, you kind of answered my question. I mean, answered the question as you asked it to me. But in regards to practices of. Um, Things that are not codified, cod I mean, because what you've, with the score, with the performance script, you know, you're attempting to codify the, um, what, what can't be codified, mm -hmm. but in a way that leaves it open, mm -hmm. which for, for mediums perhaps to manifest, mm -hmm. like which was kind of going back to Joel's mm -hmm. question before, which could manifest through these, you know, the seagulls coming in or that, you know, we can't, we can't, not, we can't count them out as presences, mm -hmm. potentially. Um, so that's my thoughts on that. But I mean, going back to the, um, the way that people have been able to subvert or overthrow their oppressors through different forms of encryption and having secret, um, or yeah, secret languages and, and dialects, which uh, kind of exceed the bounds of what we understand as, as language through mm -hmm. sound and through dance um, or movement. Um, yeah, it's really yeah, under-acknowledged and great to be able to experience and, and very important to be able to, to share that tacit uh, knowledge. Thank you. That answered your question. Thanks, Nancy. And sorry for putting you on the spot. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> I'm, I am here. I'm, I'm really fascinated with sounds with these these intentions meanings like like you were talking about drumming but there are so many societies so many communities where you know you have ways of communicating between the mountains like they have ways of sending signals with their voice to to say something it's a language um, in sound you know um, or people have have language to speak to, like like people who, the, the sea nomads uh, who live on the sea, mm -hmm. uh, some of them have this, for example, language to speak to the shark in the water, mm -hmm. you know, and all these, I'm just really fascinated with these sounds that has such significance that carry intention, you know, even just like something that signals like the flood is coming from the mountain to the bottom, you know, in like Indonesia they have the system of this this um, like a gourd that, that they, they they relate the sound from the top to the to the mm. bottom. Just all these, yeah, I'm really fascinated with sound with intentions, and I think one of the things that I want to do with my composition is to make to to see if it's possible for us to find that to regain that those sound with intentions. Mm. And it's really important, obviously. Um, in the context of avant-garde music, mm. because so much energy in the 20th century went into stripping sounds mm -hmm. of their social context and mm -hmm. intention. The idea in music concrete of the sonic object of sound just as a thing in the world that can be reproduced mm -hmm. and sort of um, understood in a kind of quantified objective manner, which is a sort of fa phantom, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. of course, um, in order to produce an object, you have to sort of socially and politically construct it. You have to have a bunch of people in a 
concert hall listening to a tape recorder and understanding what that means and why they're there. And even then, the object is only provisionally sort of constructed. Um, but your insistence on sound as signification, as intention, as co codified meaning. For communication, something that actually can communicate. Mm. Yeah. No, no, it's, um, I think it's a kind of, um, it's the, um, it feels like some sort of revenge against the mo modernist avant-garde and it's sort of for formalism, yeah. which is also, um, you know, ver very much um, a, a kind of cultural imperialism too, in which for instance, classical music mm -hmm. as um, a colonial enterprise um, so, sort of spreads throughout the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, there's something very sort of empowering about this insistence on signification mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as a composer. Yeah. Are there any other um, thoughts or observations? It's sort of been a very serious conversation not to not not too many jokes or you know um there's usually one crazy question that just has everyone scratching their heads i mean who's brave enough to ask that one anyone here what you were talking about avant-garde music and going all the way back to the pause um the kind of folk folksy um, derivation of the like with the sumo, uh, the circular, the yoi, and the pause, uh, that 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 all has its um, or origins in a in a very folk context, doesn't it? Yes. Or is that am I mistaken? Yeah. I mean, can you can you talk us through that? Yeah. So um, in the first part of the piece, when the musicians tracing a speech of my father. Um, he's talking about this childhood memory and, um, you know, uh, when he was uh, very young, um, the discrimination was really severe and he was forced to work on the field. But there was one moment that Japanese people and Ainu people came together and it was a very ironic situation, and he describes this. And he um, and it was an occasion during the war, World War II, where a Japanese community approached the Ainu people to join them and pray for victory of Japan over the U.S. and allies. Um, and um, and he's talking about this in the video where it took place. And it's a Japanese shrine. It was it was built by Japanese people in the village. Um, and behind him, there is this mound of uh, herbs. Um, and he says, just behind here, Japanese people and other people came together, formed a circle, and did this ritual of Nguyen Horipi, which is a very, very rare uh, ritual um, to send complaints to the gods. Um, and he describes it. Um, and then he describes that, you know, what the, the elderly man did and the elderly woman did. 
Um, and then he says that, and then we stomp together in circle. Um, but we stomp so far, it's not just putting your foot down quietly, but you put it down so firmly that you're going to ward off all the evil spirits and bring in good things. And when he said that, that just very much connected to well, what in Japan we understand as shiko. And there are many roots for that word for shiko, which is basically the shiko, it, it's um, stomping on the ground. It's the train, training routine for sumo wrestlers, um, but it's, it's not just that, and it, it, it can be written in different ways. It can, it's like, um, like some, uh, I forgot all the characters. But anyway, it's basically to stomp the ground so firmly to ward off bad spirits, exactly what he said. So I thought that if we go down Go, go back so uh, early um, in the history um, to something as basic as stomping the ground, um, I, there may be a possibility for a Japanese person, I, to listen to his voice, to my Aino father's voice. And it connected very much to, um, sorry for this long ex explanation, <laughs> Um, for me, it connected very, uh, very much to a ritual that I studied, that I, that I had opportunity to learn from the people who are preserving it. It's in the western part of Japan, in, uh, very deep in the mountain, um, and it's performed in front in the shrine. They also have this mound of earth. Um, to, so, because small was offered to... Um, she, it was performed in front of the spirits um, to pray for, to, to, thanks, to give thanksgiving for the harvest and everything in different parts of Japan. It happens all over, the Japan, all over Japan, but in here, in the western part of Japan, they had this ritual where two men from the village um, stand facing each other and um, uh, so the god is here, and we stand here, and then they have to wait for the moment to stomp. And all the villagers come to the shrine to watch this, and they wait together. And in that waiting, there is such deep listening happening um, that somehow for me it connected. So I'm not, not recreating, I'm not at all recreating what my father talks about as a ritual. It's a very specific Ainu ritual that I have no place to recreate. It's, it's not to be recreated. I'm not doing that at all. I'm not also recreating the ritual from the Western part of uh, Japan that I'm referring to, but I'm referring to them and just, just sharing that stomping and the waiting. Am I making sense? Mm -hmm. Am I answering your yeah, question? Yoy and waiting, waiting for that. Yeah, so yoy comes from that ritual, and I'm I'm sharing that with the musicians in the video. Yeah, and they're they're just trying it for the first time, so I'm. It looks like, and I am actually leading them, <laughs> but in the real ritual, um, they wait for the moment, and it just comes, and all of them wait, all the people, all the villagers. 
and we, yeah, we, 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 when we, when I say we, I have a group of uh, composers. I, I have a group with two other composers who research about traditions and cultures um, related to sumo and then make new music uh, and art performances. Um, and then we had this opportunity to learn. So when we learned this and did it in different contexts, um, it just really felt like this, this wisdom of, fr of framing time um, happened 300 years before Cage. So we called this, we performed this in different parts of the world and say this, um, listening to Nete Sumo. Nete Sumo is the, the name of the ritual. Net, listening to Nete Sumo BC 300, meaning before Cage 300. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, that's just a reference to, but it has a history. I mean, I, I, I learned this years ago and I be, we've been doing this. So it's just a reference to some of the history that I have if that makes any sense. Okay. Thanks, yeah. Tomoko. That's yeah. extremely generous answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, um, yeah, big thank you to Tomoko Mamiyama yeah, and all of the collaborators here. That was Joel Stern talking with Tomoko Mamiyama at Contemporary Art Tasmania. Tomoko Momiyama's collaborators for this iteration of the work were Maggie Abraham, Georgia Shine, Joe Weller, Ursula Woods, with technical assistance from Finn Clark, John Smethers, and Rosie Hasty. In this recording, we also hear from Nancy Morrisflood and Michael Edwards. Listening within the opacities of our times and places was curated by Joel Stern and Lisa Campbell Smith. The project is funded by the Australia Japan Foundation and supported by Asia Link Arts. This residency and exhibition is the result of the collaborative cross-border project, the Instrument Builders Project, with liquid architecture and volcanic winds. You can visit the exhibition at Contemporary Art Tasmania until September 11, 2022. For more information about the project and to listen to the previous podcast episode about Tomoko Momiyama's wider practice, head to www.contemporaryarttasmania.com. Thank you.